children that are that are diagnosed with newborn screening, uh, they they basically have life-saving or life-altering conditions. You're listening to the voice of Dr. Riding Howell, who is a professor and chairman emeritus of pediatrics and emeritus member of the Husband Institute for Human Genomics at the Miller School of Medicine at the University of Miami. He is certified by the American Board of Pediatrics as well as the American Board of Medical Genetics and Genomics in Clinical Biochemical Genetics. Dr. Howell was the founding chair of the U.S. congressionally mandated Secretary's Advisory Committee of Herbal Disorders in Newborns and Children from the year 2004 to 2011. This is the committee that advises the Secretary of Health and Human Services on issues concerning genetic testing in children. During this time, this committee oversaw the development of the recommended uniform screening, newborn screening panel. Dr. Howe serves as an advisor to the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network, known as MBSTRN. In this podcast episode, you will get a brief history of newborn screening and newborn screening research and the stories of families impacted by newborn screening. Listen to how it all got started. Hello. This is the Newborn Screening Spotlight. This podcast is about the advancement of rare disease research told by health professionals, researchers, parents, and advocates. This podcast is for you to learn how newborn screening research saves the lives of babies every day through the discovery of new technology and treatment. You will hear stories from experts who treat babies, the families who care for them, and the researchers who make it all happen. We are your co-hosts. I am Dr. Ki Chan. And I'm Dr. Amy Brower. We're from the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network, also known as the MBSTRN. Our work is supported by one of the institutes at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, called the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, also known as NICHD. Dr. Chan and I are from the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, also known as ACMG, and ACMG leads the MBSTRN. Screening babies saves lives every day, and research advances newborn screening by developing new technologies to screen, diagnose, and treat. MBSTRN helps accelerate research by creating tools, resources, and expertise for researchers, doctors, families, patients, and advocates. Dr. Howe, thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast. Newborn screening began in the 1960s with screening to prevent intellectual disability. What were the important milestones in newborn screening over the years, and how did it all get started? The history of newborn screening is really extremely interesting because there are a number of remarkable heroes along the way. Actually, I like to think about newborn screening as beginning in Norway in the late 1920s. And at that time, there was a young couple, a young dentist and his wife. Uh, They had a child who was developmentally delayed. The child was very slow in development and so forth. Uh, And they were very concerned about that child and so forth. They uh, noticed uh, a couple of things in addition to his being developmentally delayed. Uh, in that there was a very strange odor about the child. And the father, the young dentist, found the odor so overwhelming that he had trouble being in the room with this uh, child. Uh, as they were thinking about uh, what to do about that, Dr. Eglin, who's the young dentist, 
real remember that in medical school, he had a professor who taught them about acidosis. And that professor in medical school that was teaching him in dental school uh, was named uh, Ashburn Furling. And, and Dr. Furling uh, was very smart. He was actually, he was um, in medical school at that time and he was moonlighting teaching the dental students. And so uh, the family was thinking about, they would go see Dr. Furling about this child. Uh, and uh, as, as they were getting ready to go visit him, they had another baby uh, who was born. And over a short period of time, they recognized that that child was also very delayed. They went to see Dr. Furling, and Dr. Furling uh, suggested that they collect a lot of urine so that he could look for abnormal acid material or ketones in the urine. And Mrs. Eglin, who was very acidic, brought lots and lots of urine to the lab. And Dr. Furling, over a period of a long period of time, uh, discovered that, that there were unusual materials in the urine, uh, in that when he added ferric chloride to the urine to look for ketone, urine turned green, and he had never seen that before. And he isolated this green material and found that it was an analog breakdown product of phenylalanine, which is one of our essential amino acids. He worked very hard over that over a period of years, and within a year, uh, he published the fact that these children had an abnormality in the use of phenylalanine, and that phenylalanine was accumulating in the blood, and these were breakdown products of phenylalanine in the urine. Uh, and so he called that condition phenylperuvic oligophrenia. He looked in the local institutions and found that a small portion of all the people in uh, around Oslo, where they were working in Norway, had this developmental disability. Uh, and so uh, they, there was a great deal of interest at that time about goodness, uh, a, a condition with an abnormal metabolite that seemed to be related directly to developmental delay. Now, folks thought right off the bat that goodness, if it was an accumulation of an essential amino acid, if we restrict it, it might help the children. But not much happened in that area because the war was spreading through Europe, as you well remember, in the late 30s by this time, uh, and so forth. And not much happened until about uh, until the early 1950s, uh, when a, a, a graduate student uh, from Germany uh, was working at Birmingham Children's Hospital in the UK. Um, and his name was Horst Bickel. And Bickel uh, was very interested in this condition. And he then uh, thought, well, goodness, it'd be great if we could restrict the diet. And they communicated with a very bright uh, physician, uh, uh, not a physician, a scientist, uh, at Great Ormond Street, which is a preeminent children's hospital in London. Uh, and that guy's name was Lewis Wolf. And I had the privilege of meeting Lewis Wolf. The American College of Medical Genetics gave him an award when he was 90. He had retired and had moved to Canada, uh, and I, I was president of the college at that time, and I presented him an award for his work on PKU. But the bottom line, Dr. Wolf, a chemist, uh, realized uh, that uh, he knew how to take phenylalanine out of a protein hydrolysate. That was what he was doing. He was a chemist. And so he worked with Bickel, and they developed a diet uh, for PKU. Uh, that was deficient in phenylalanine, uh, and they treated a little girl named Sheila, 
And the recent book has been published uh, in, the, in the UK by Anne Green about Sheila. Uh, but Sheila was the first person ever treated with PKU. And they treat, she was profoundly delayed. When they put her on a low phenylalanine diet, she improved. She got brighter. She learned to crawl and things of that nature. They put her back on a regular diet and she went downhill. And they said, gosh, this is terrific. Uh, but it looked like we'd have to start really early. And so when you said, I've got a significant disorder that I have a treatment for that must be treated early. And since it was, it was already known that it's an autosome recessive disorder. And so uh, there was no family history. You said, well, goodness, how could we test the general public for a condition uh, that would need treating? And at that time, we switched back now to the United States and so forth, where Bob Guthrie, a pediatric uh, uh, scientist at Buffalo Children's Hospital, who I might point out is planning a big seminar this summer uh, for the first time to celebrate his work. But Bob Guthrie was working there on cancer, but he had a delayed child and was interested in developmental delay, and they convinced him to develop a test to look for elevated phenylalanine in healthy babies. And he developed a dried blood spot. Now that we're talking now uh, over uh, in the 1960s. And so we're talking about 60 years ago, a long time ago. But the dried blood spot, he developed a, a test that was very simple. It was a bacterial inhibition assay. It spread throughout the United States because it was simple. It could be done in all the state labs around the U.S., and you could detect perfectly healthy babies at birth who had elevated phenylalanine. A diet could be provided for the baby at birth, and lo and behold, the child ended up with relatively normal intelligence. And today, many, many years, many decades later, we realize that uh, infants diagnosed in the newborn period with phenylketonuria. Uh, can be treated, uh, and they are now normal, et cetera. So that's how it started, a treatable disorder, a test that could be done throughout the country cheaply and effectively, uh, and that caused dramatic improvement. Uh, the untreated person with phenylketonuria has an average intelligence of 20. Never toilet trained, never speak, no problem at all as, as far as their ability to be profoundly delayed. You treat them as an infant and they end up being normal, dramatic. And so that was why newborn screening developed rapidly across the country and became available in every state in the United States over a fairly short period of time. So there's a long story there to what I consider some of these core heroes along the way, uh, et cetera. And Bob Guthrie, I happened to read running the newborn screening program at Johns Hopkins uh, when this was developed, because I've been around a long time. Uh, and uh, Bob Guthrie used to come to visit, uh, and it was uh, unbelievably exciting to see developmentally delayed children that we were seeing in our own clinic at Hopkins, uh, and then uh, they would be treated, and they returned to be normal, spectacular. Wow, that was a fantastic story, just to hear about how it all began and just the hidden history, because you probably won't see this when you look up newborn screening on Google, it'll come up the generic definition, 
and on Wikipedia, but just hearing how you knew about the story and your role in the history of New Birth Screening is very amazing. And especially, Dr. Howell, like you were integral with the beginning of the advisory committee on heritable disorders in newborns and children. Can you tell us more about this committee and how it fits into newborn screening? Yes, it, and it's, it's very interesting. Uh, newborn screening occupies a quite unique role in healthcare in the United States. Uh, uh, and the reason for that is if newborn screening is done in the public health laboratories, if every baby in the United States gets newborn screening without the ability to pay or whatever, because no one is charged for newborn screening, and every state has a rule uh, that provides that. So that's an exciting thing. But what happened is that since you could treat PKU, as I, I've mentioned, and it's very effective, what happened is that states, uh, uh, and again, all these programs are based in the individual states, but the states, uh, many states started screening for other things. In other words, goodness, if you can screen for PKU, what about screening for other things? And one of the early things to screen for was hypothyroidism, and that worked really pretty well and so forth. But people started screening for other things that were maybe difficult to detect, that the test may not be reliable, but the big issue, it became extremely variable. So you would have one state that would be screening for three or four conditions, another would be screening for 10 conditions. And then if you, as you know, the United States, our population is very, very mobile. And so if you move from state to state, uh, you would have a tremendous problem. If you had a baby uh, with a rare disease that was screened for uh, in one state and you moved to another and they didn't screen for it, that's a real problem. So the, the United States Congress passed a law uh, uh, that it has been named the Newborn Screening Save Lives Act. Uh, and it required that a, a special advisory committee, a federal advisory committee, be established to advise the Secretary of Health and Human Services about newborn screening, uh, the tests that should be included and uh, the grants that should be awarded and a variety of other things. But the key thing was what you should screen for in the newborn period. And uh, I had the privilege of being the founding chair of that committee. And we first met in 2004. So it's been a long time. Uh, and the first thing that, that we did was review a major work that had been done uh, under a contract uh, at the American College of Medical Genetics uh, at that time, it did not have the genomic edition, but it was American College of Medical Genetics, uh, at looking at what conditions should be screened for, the criteria for screening. In other words, uh, do you know about the disease? Do you know about the test of the disease? Uh, do you have a treatment, uh, et cetera, et cetera? Can you show benefit? Is it important to be screened in the newborn period? But the committee first reviewed that, uh, and we spent a year reviewing that, I and the committee is a, is a broad committee. It has professional members, such as scientists, physicians. It also has families, and it has a number of federal members that are on the committee. It's a committee of about 18 people, et cetera. But we reviewed that for a full year uh, and concluded uh, that this was a, a very good report, and we adopted that and sent it to the secretary, who eventually approved it. And we call that the recommended uniform panel. And, and it's now known, I think, throughout the country 
as the RUSC, the recommended uniform panel. Uh, and it had uh, it had specific recommendations of a core panel that that was, that was thought that every baby should be screened for, uh, and then it had secondary conditions that that we didn't know enough about to recommend screening for them, but that you would likely die, uh, detect during the screening. Uh, that created a great deal of interest. It was a front page article in the New York Times that we would recommend that every baby in the country be screened for so many conditions. But uh, over time, uh, uh, fundamentally, every state in the country either uh, tests for uh, the recommended uniform panel or is in the process of developing uh, the test in their lab and so forth. And that number has increased over uh, recent times. And so we're now into the over 30 recommended uh, uniform panel. Uh, and so uh, that's what how that committee uh, the committee is required to make all of its recommendations based on scientific evidence. So each condition that's studied by the committee uh, takes a lot of time and a lot of money because there's a, a committee, a, a group that does the the at the, uh, rec the reference work, uh, and that's very tedious and so forth. But it's all evidence based. You may not agree with the committee, but it's based on evidence. And the committee continues to function extremely well. And the law has been renewed a couple of times. And it, I might point out it's very important that the Newborn Screening Save Lives Act is currently uh, under review. Uh, it has been it's passed already in the House of Representatives. Uh, it's currently being uh, reviewed in the Senate. Uh, and uh, as soon as that is done, the president will clearly pass that uh, uh, next uh, recommend, rec period of time for the committee. And the committee, the committee is already functioning. Uh, but it will be a formal committee, uh, et cetera. And so that will continue to be a key area uh, where decisions are made about newborn screening. Well, thank you for sharing with us about the importance of the committee and how it plays a role in examining evidence of new conditions. The evidence needs to stem from research. And so my next question relates to research. Research discovers new technologies to screen, diagnose, and treat newborns. Why is newborn screening research important? Well, it's uh, it's critical to do research because uh, each step, each time you add something, uh, you must do a lot of research to be sure uh, about not only the diagnosis but the treatment and so forth. Um, the the key technology uh, that has permitted newborn screening to be so expansive is tandem mass spectroscopy, and that particular technique. Uh, which we won't go into, uh, permits you on a very small sample. We still use the dried blood spot that was recommended by Bob Guthrie. Uh, but we, uh, at, the, at the current time with tandem mass spectroscopy, uh, you can see and examine hundreds of metabolites at, at, at one time uh, and quantitate those all done with computerized system. And so you can diagnose and, and screen for many, many conditions at the same time with very great accuracy. Very important to be accurate because you can't miss anybody. But on the other hand, you can't have uh, a lot of uh, that are false positive tests. You can't have a lot of, of erroneous tests. You need to have extremely high accuracy. And the accuracy has continued to increase and increase with newborn screening. So the accuracy has increased uh, tremendously. And I think it's fair to say there's lots of research going on with new technologies and so forth. Uh, the Mayo Clinic has been a particular leader 
uh, in looking at the accuracy of the testing, and that's an invaluable uh, work that they're doing. And increasingly, uh, we're adding as second tier, in other words, actually the primary screening test, adding a second screening test before you rescind any results app that we call a second tier. And, and, and uh, with great frequency now, we're adding that second tier, a genomic test, so that you can increase not only the accuracy, but the specificity of the test. Uh, we will continue to require uh, to have a lot of research and I think that we're going to be seeing a lot more genomic studies uh, going on, and that will require a lot more research and a tremendous amount of technology as far as information technology, because the data management will be enormous. It will continue to be very, very important in our research. I might point out is that one of the questions that people say, well, goodness, all this stuff you're doing, does it really make a difference? And the answer to that is yes. The CDC, uh, in its most recent publication, has said that we diagnose 13,000 babies a year with a treatable disorder. And again, the children that are that are diagnosed with newborn screening, uh, they they basically have life-saving or life-altering conditions: spinal muscular atrophy, type one. Those babies die before age two. Uh, with the current treatment, both with antisense oligonucleotides or with gene therapy, uh, those children are doing much, much better. You see a three or four year old riding a tricep. It's absolutely magic. Uh, so uh, you, you see that sort of stuff. And the other thing I like to point out, I, I've said at the beginning of the comment that phenylketonuria, the first condition we screen for, untreated, has an average intelligence of under 20 no speech, no language, uh, no toilet training, et cetera. And so that's why it's so important to be accurate and timely in all of the tests that we do in the newborn period. I kind of agree more, Dr. Howe, that newborn screening research is so very important. So my next question is has two parts. Where do you see newborn screening and newborn screening research going in the next 10 years and in the next 50 years? Well, it, it's very interesting. Uh, when, when we first started uh, with the expansion of newborn screening, uh, uh, one, it's a big deal for a state laboratory to add a new test. Uh, and the state labs tend to have marginal funding. Uh, they're always looking for additional funding to staff and to buy the instruments and so forth. Uh, but at the same time, uh, although we're screening now for 30 or 40 conditions, uh, and depending on how you count, some people count uh, things in such a way that you say we're screening for 70, but basically people are screening for the same thing, as, as I say, in the 40s and so forth. But fundamentally, uh, the, 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 the key thing is that I think we're just beginning. Uh, and, and I think that we will, in the future, be screening for many more conditions. And you say, well, goodness, why in the world would we be screening for many more conditions? One is that we will have many, many new treatments uh, for uh, these disorders. Uh, uh, there are an enormous number of treatments, both with specific drugs like the antisense oligonucleotides, uh, with the uh, with gene therapy, uh, and uh, with other specific gene modifying uh, treatments 
where you can actually alter uh, a, gene a genetic segment and so forth. And, and so we're going to be seeing a lot, lot more conditions. The other, the other thing that I, I, I think we're going to be see happening is that uh, I think that uh, what what I predict is, and this is a very personal opinion, but I think it's it uh, it has some credence, and that is that I think that uh, we will see uh, increasingly uh, that uh, that an infant uh, will be uh, or a family will be offered uh, at taking one of the spots and having a whole genome sequencing done on one of those spots and have that spot, the results of that spot in a, an information technology program that will permit you to inquire about the genome in detail years from now. So that if, for instance, you say a baby is born today, they store the sample. Uh, and again, you'd, you'd have to ask permission to do this, of course. You store the sample uh, and it may be in a private uh, facility. Uh, and so that in 10 years or 20 years, if you have a problem with a strange neurologic problem or a strange muscle disease or something of that nature, you can inquire of this and get a later onset rare disease. And I think that that will, that the logical place to have that tied is in newborn screening. Uh, there's a lot of stuff to be done before we do that. But I think that it is, I think that that newborn screening is going to be the doorway uh, to the diagnosis of rare diseases because all the conditions we diagnose from newborn period are rare. But there are large numbers of rare diseases that have a later onset that there's no way currently to diagnose. In other words, there's no mechanism, unlike uh, newborn screening, where we have every baby, uh, all uh, Almost four million babies. We have actually fewer than four million now, but about four million babies. We test every one of those babies. We miss almost no baby. But the point is, once you get beyond the newborn period, there's no system in the country that tests everybody uh, for a rare disease and so forth. So I think it might be a gateway uh, for rare disease research in the future. In the uh, upcoming years, I think with regard to uh, uh, newborn screening research, I think there are three major groups that, uh, from the federal side that fund research, uh, and that is uh, Health Services Research Association, or HRSA, uh, and HRSA uh, is directly responsible for the Secretary's Advisory Committee, and the Secretary's Advisory Committee does indeed have some small grants, uh, and that over, over time, at least when I was chair, we funded some important work, uh, et cetera. But you, there is there certainly are grants, and the current legislation uh, that is in Congress has an increased budget for those grants. And if that goes through, that will be one one area. But HRSA has long term been a funder of, of direct service aspects of newborn screening, et cetera, and will continue to be so. And has been. Very important in the area of sickle cell disease, one of the really important conditions uh, for which we do newborn screening. Uh, the uh, the other area that funds a great deal is the Centers for Disease Control, uh, it's out of the, or the CDC, uh, and the CDC uh, funds a lot of stuff in quality assurance. Uh, they do a lot of data collection. Uh, they they do the quality control of the state labs uh, as well as labs throughout the country. But the CDC always has funding going on 
uh, having to do with newborn screening. And then finally, the National Institutes of Health uh, has a myriad of programs that uh, that uh, fund uh, in, in the region of newborn screening. And commonly, uh, those are will be focused on specific diseases such as urea or methylmalonic acidemia, the lysosomal storage diseases, but a wide array of research opportunities. And so there are always opportunities to fund. And the one thing that uh, I, I think we should uh, uh, continue to, to remember is that some of the large voluntary health organizations also uh, do uh, important funding uh, in uh, having to do with diseases that are currently ending the arena of newborn screening. Uh, the Muscular Dystrophy Association does, uh, the March of Dimes does, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, all these big groups do have a program that uh, will uh, relate directly to newborn screening. So those are all places to look uh, for programs. But thank you for sharing your perspective on newborn screening and newborn screening research in the future. What advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a career similar to yours? Well, you know, I think I think it's a great time to go into this field and so forth. One is that uh, um, first, uh, there is an incredible shortage of metabolic biochemical geneticists in the country. We have a shortage of all kinds of geneticists, but the, the metabolic biochemical group is particularly short. Now, one of the things that I think will benefit from the recent pandemic, and there are not many things that are going to benefit, is that we've learned a lot about uh, uh, long-distance consultations and, and things of this nature, having Zoom meetings and seeing and webinars and things of that nature. So I think that will expand uh, the capabilities of the people that we do have, but we still will be short. But the reason it's such an exciting time is areas becoming increasingly very, very highly specialized. So if you happen to be interested in biochemistry or mass spectroscopy, um, there are enormous opportunities. If you happen to be interested in mathematics uh, and so forth, uh, information technology is going to be absolutely seminal to looking and examining the entire genome structure and looking at mutations and abnormalities in the genome uh, which I think will become a relatively routine practice, but examining the, the, the genome is much more difficult than sequencing. We have wonderful machines that really do a great job of sequencing the genome with, uh, with minimum uh, help. But the point is, is that once you sequence it and once you store that information, you have to have a lot of really clever scientists to look at the data and figure out what in the world these billions of base pairs and their rearrangements and their deletion and so forth mean and so forth. So I think the opportunities for a wide spectrum of, of folks with a very diverse interest, there are tremendous issues having to do with ethical issues in this area. Many of the things I talk about have enormous ethical uh, contributions and so forth. So you need, you need ethicists, you need counselors of all sorts, you need information technologists, you need chemists, uh, you need, you know, you need the whole panoply, you need business people, uh, all sorts of things. You can pick your pick your area of interest and they will be a place for you to work and so forth in the future, I believe. Dr. Howell, thank you for sharing the advice. And I hope listeners, you're excited about a career in newborn screening. 
Dr. Hao, you've been an important advisor to the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network, known as MBSTRN. What role does MBSTRN play, and what role should MBSTRN play? When, when, uh, when the work on the when I was actually uh, working at the National Institutes of Health, I was chair of pediatrics in Miami, and then at the end of my tour of duty as chair. Uh, Dwayne Alexander at the National Institutes of Health asked if I would come up and work with the NIH uh, in their newborn screening effort because they were looking to expand that effort. And I went up and spent a number of years in Bethesda with Dwayne and the group at the uh, NIH, a, a great group of people, I might point out. Uh, and it, it was during this time that newborn screening was expanding greatly, uh, and it was dramatically apparent uh, that uh, we... You, you can screen the baby, you can treat the baby, uh, but our ability to, to tell you what we knew about following up these children was meager. Uh, and that uh, when you diagnose an infant in newborn screening and you treat that infant, regardless of the kind of treatment, uh, a biochemical treatment, a gene therapy, you need a very systematic way of following up those children. Uh, and you obviously, uh, as, as a part of that, uh, you also need uh, very carefully done uh, newborn screening efforts. For instance, before we take a test throughout the entire country, uh, you want to have a large number of babies in populous states who are screened and followed meticulously and very carefully perform pilot newborn screening programs before you send it everywhere because there are always things you need to modify, et cetera. So it was very clear uh, that, that, that a follow-up program that would look at a variety of issues surrounding newborn screening, but focused on following up infants who had been screened and overseeing important pilot studies, such as uh, pilot big screening programs and so forth, uh, and, and making all those things happen uh, would would absolutely be necessary. And that was the background of the funding for the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network, which is funded, was funded then and continues to be funded by NICHD. Uh, and uh, it, um, I think that as these programs become more complex, uh, as you have more systems, you have, as you have more genomics, et cetera, added to the thing, I think the NBSTRN uh, uh, is going to continue to be very important. And I, I see it's uh, the need for that uh, effort going forward uh, will be expanded and it certainly will not be shrinking. And so. Well, thank you so much for your important role in the foundation of the Newborn Screening and Translation and Research Network. We'd like to end the interview with our signature last question. What does newborn screening research mean to you? Well, you know, I, th I think that... Uh, Obviously, that's a very broad question, and uh, it means a great deal. But I think that as I think uh, of, of my own personal uh, experience in the newborn uh, screening and treatment uh, area, uh, I'm reminded uh, of uh, my very earliest days in the field uh, when uh, newborn screening was just starting, uh, and I was working in the, the pediatric uh, a biochemical genetics clinic uh, at Hopkins, where we saw the young people with uh, PKU. And, and, and a young man I saw 
whose family lived in East Baltimore, uh, who whose first name was Michael. I remember him very well. Uh, he was about 14 years old. Uh, he was six feet two, very tall kid, uh, and uh, had dramatically blue eyes and so forth. Uh, and he had untreated philokinuria. Uh, his family were really devoted, and Michael lived at home in East Baltimore. Uh, and uh, he he had never had any speech. He was, as I mentioned, he's 14 years old. He was not toilet trained uh, and so forth. And he came to the clinic and uh, kind of walked on his tiptoes, which is uh, common for some of these children. Uh, but he was a classic untreated phenylpheniuric. And I think about him clearly today. Uh, we, we had wonderful help on the committee uh, with uh, treated persons with PKU uh, and other, uh, very other, many other uh, conditions that have been treated successfully. Uh, and so uh, I think you, 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 it, it's extremely helpful to have a history where you've seen the, 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 the children and the young adults and so forth who have these conditions and who have not benefited from do one screening, either because it was not yet developed, the treatment wasn't developed, or the place was not, and so forth. And so uh, it's just invaluable. And one of the things I personally enjoy, I've been very active uh, in the International Society of Neonatal Screening. And one of the things that we work with internationally is to go to countries, and there are many countries in the world who have no newborn screening as of this time, and so forth, and, and to talk about the, and again, that's kind of a form of research of, of, of how, of, of working with a country uh, that has no newborn screening and needs to start, uh, and you obviously can't be the United States tomorrow morning. It takes a long time. So uh, you you have to have uh, research and development of moving that into the world. So there are opportunities also in international medicine and public health uh, to uh, to bring newborn screening along in the developing countries. But but newborn uh, newborn screening research will be uh, active and vigorous for many years to come because there's so so much. Uh, to learn and to know. And so thank you very much, uh, Key, for your insightful questions. And uh, it's been fun for me to chat with you about this. Thank you so much, Dr. Howe, for sharing your experience, the stories, and, and what we as a community in newborn screening to do and for the next few years and decades on how to advance newborn screening research. So thank you for being our guest on our podcast. To learn how you can help advance newborn screening research, advocate for rare disease screening and treatment, and learn about important discovery, become a member of the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network by visiting our website at www.mbstrn.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of Newborn Screening Spotlight. If you like our podcast, please subscribe and share an episode with your colleagues, friends, and family. Get involved. Stay informed. Help us advance discoveries. Together, Together let's, let's increase, increase the impact, impact of newborn screening research by listening to your stories. stories.